In 2018, the, uh, the insurance provider Cigna conducted some research on the topic of friendship. And so this study prompted the Barna Group uh, to compile their own data, and then the Barna Group then released this blog post in 2018 that's called U.S. Adults Have Few Friends, and the friends that they have are mostly just like them. Now, what Cigna and Barna, uh, what they discovered is that the, the Americans have on average between one and five um, people that they would consider close friends. Now, to me, you guys know I'm a pessimist and, and, and I kind of go towards cynicism. That sounded a little bit high to me, honestly. The interesting thing, though, is this. Regardless of the number of friends, out of those surveyed, one in five said that they often felt the feeling of, quote, deep loneliness. Barna called this loneliness, Barna called this a loneliness epidemic. Now, if there is one thing that we know in our day and age is that the words epidemic and the words pandemic are serious business. The report goes on to say this, those who report the highest levels of loneliness are single, male, young, and likely earning a lower income, those who aren't working or those who are part of the growing uh, proportion of Americans who work remotely or for themselves are making fewer friends because, listen to this, a plurality of adults, 42%, meet meet their friends at their job. Outside of their place of employment, American adults meet their closest friends through other friends at 35%, and then in their neighborhood at 29%. So just think about that. Finally, here's, here's one more stat that I wanted to share. They, did, they, they, did, they dove into the makeup of friend groups, and here's what they discovered. The majority of people surveyed said that they were more drawn to people just like themselves of like-minded religion, like-minded race, like-minded ethnicity, like-minded income, like-minded politics, like-minded social status, like-minded education level, like-minded stage of life. In particular, those who identified as, quote, evangelical were less likely than most um, to have friends who were uh, different than them, especially when it comes to religious beliefs, 91%, ethnicity, 88%, and political views, 86%. Now, as a pastor of an evangelical church, I want to go on record as saying that that is completely unacceptable and completely contrary to the, to the definition of the word evangelical, which, if you don't know, by definition is, quote, according to the teachings of the good news of Jesus. That's what evangelicals hold to, the teachings of the good news of Jesus. And if the statistic is that 91% of of evangelical believers were able to say that everybody's just like them in these things, then that preaches a contrary message than what Christ preaches. If you're on this uh, live stream this morning and you don't know what this good news is, I just want to say quickly, the good news of Jesus is the pronouncement that in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation is being joined back together in Christ. And the church is the visible picture, a kingdom outpost, a light in the world of that reality. And, and, and we've come to full, like the reality that Christ 
Christ has come to fully and finally make his new creation here on earth. Last week we talked about the Christian life together, tending, or contending toward Christ, joyfully laying down our idols and taking hold of Christ together. And this week in the final verses of chapter 2, Paul gives us some examples of how this is worked out um, through our friendships or our partnerships in the gospel. And so let's read this together. Verse 19 in chapter 2 says this, now I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you as soon, uh, excuse me, let me start over. Now I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who, would genu- who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come to you soon. Verse 25, but I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he had nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, before we unpack these verses, I want to reiterate that the book of Philippians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he started in this European city of Philippi, first church planted in Philippi. Read about that in Acts chapter 16. One of the intriguing things about this letter um, is that Paul is not writing this letter from the comfort of his own home. He's not writing this letter from the comfort of his study or from the comfort of of a temple or a church building. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison cell. He's incarcerated for the very faith that he is communicating in this letter to the church. We've titled this series, A Peculiar Joy, because not only is this letter written from this desolate, uh, uncertain place that Paul's in, it's filled with a joy in the midst of Paul's current reality, and he himself is taking time not only to talk about what he's experiencing, but he's encouraging this church, this group of people who he loves dearly, to have the same peculiar joy that he has. This book is chocked full of references of joy. Joy, rejoice, um, is, is in this little short four-chapter book like 13 or 14 times. I think this letter is appropriate for us in the season that we find ourselves in, a tangible season where connection is hard. Video screens are taking a toll on us. Sickness, death, disconnection, economic failure, all of that stuff is very real. Fear and anxiety, they grip us. And family, 
We do well in the midst of this season to to fix our eyes on the good news that Paul the Apostle has his eyes fixed on in the Roman cell. Not in denial, but accepting the reality of brokenness of this season. Feeling our feelings and collectively turning our eyes toward Jesus to help us. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul said in verses 3 through 6 that he th- he's writing to the Philippians and he's saying, I thank God for every remembrance of, of you, for your partnership or fellowship or friendship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, think about this definition of gospel partnership or gospel friendship. What would that mean? Well, it for sure means give, and it for sure means take. It's a give and take. I think what Paul is saying is something like this. Paul is looking back on the way that he has been able to see the Lord use him in the lives of the Philippians. He's also aware of how the Lord has used the Philippian church profoundly in his life. Y'all, this is important. The Philippian church did not just consume Paul's theological mind. They didn't just consume what Paul could do for them. They ministered to him. I think it's so interesting that even um, as this letter closes, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, where, where Paul says that even when I was in Thessalonica, you met me there with a gift. And if you know kind of the story arc of the book of Acts, Thessalonica is, is, is pretty close to Philippi. And it, it, it's almost as if when Paul leaves um, Philippi and he goes into Thessalonica, they send him a gift there just out of generosity, like it just meets him there. It's immediate. They ministered to him. Chapter 1, verse 6 talks about the sanctifying work of God in their lives through gospel partnership or gospel friendship. And, 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 and y'all, this is exactly the way that God works through gospel partnership. Here in this text, I just read from chapter 2, Paul gives three examples of, of partnerships or friendships in the gospel. He, he talks about himself, he talks about Timothy, and he talks about this man Epaphroditus. Now, what do we see in the life of Paul? Well, Paul is a, we know this, Paul is a well-educated Jewish man. Later on in chapter 3, Paul's going to tell us that as far as religious leaders go, he was considered the cream of the crop. His entire world prior to coming to faith in Jesus would have been one in which it was perfectly okay to stay isolated in a holy huddle. No one in his religious circle would, ever had call, would have ever called him out for his lack of diversity in relationships. In fact, the, the way that the Pharisees applied the teaching of the Torah actually caused them to isolate themselves um, from people um, so that they wouldn't get unclean like they were. Paul was perfectly happy living his life in this way, dedicating himself to study and books and living out the Torah. He was perfectly happy with isolating himself from everybody in the world that called themselves or that he deemed unclean, Gentiles, sick people, demon-possessed people. That is, until he met Jesus. Then everything changed for Paul. 
You think about this European, probably exclusive Gentile church that he's writing to and showing great affection for in this letter. Those are people that he would have previously thought, those people are too far from God to save. Think about this young man, Timothy, that he mentions in verse 19. Throughout the scripture, we find out that, 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 that Timothy and, relate, and Paul's relationship was a, it wasn't this surface level relationship. There was a deep, deep affection between these two men. Paul, Paul here says that Timothy is like a son to him. And so we have to consider Timothy as well. What about Timothy? Well, Timothy is the second example that Paul uses in this text. We know that Timothy was a Greek man who came to faith through Jesus, uh, in Jesus through the preaching of Paul. And so apparently what we know about Timothy is that he had a Greek father who was just not in the picture. Now, there are those of you who are listening today whose story is very similar to Timothy. You know the pain of having this type of father wound, this sense of lacking. For those of you who have the same story, you know that it hurts terribly to be disowned or distanced or at odds with your earthly father. And while this sadness and sorrow is likely always going to be there for Timothy, it may always be there for you until Jesus comes back. Paul repeatedly calls Timothy a son in the faith. You see, Paul doesn't just show this broad affection and friendship for specific groups of people. He has friendships, partnerships, and he identifies um, Timothy not just as a partner or not as a friend, but he refers to Timothy as family. I love how many references in this four-chapter book, Paul says not just brothers, but he says brothers and sisters. He's talking to men and he's talking to women. That was countercultural in this day and age. Not only that, but he, he, he commends Timothy to the Philippian church. You see, he's making that connection there. He wants his word to go before Timothy so that when Timothy gets on the scene, these people that have deep affection for him also have deep affection for the man that Paul is sending to them. Gospel friendships connect other gospel friendships. And here's why. Because God has so fearfully and so wonderfully made us that we all have something unique to bring to a friendship. You see, we typically find friends and our initial desire is to hoard them all to ourselves. And it's usually out of the sense of codependency. We need this per person to give us something to make us feel a certain way or to offer us something. And we fear that if we share their friendship um, with someone else, then we get less of them when actually it's contrary to that. In the online prayer gathering the other night, um, Brett, uh, Pastor Brett mentioned this quote by C.S. Lewis that I believe is appropriate here. Um, it says, Lewis was a part of this famous um, circle of friends called the Inklings. That circle of friends included uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and another author named Charles Williams who died unexpectedly. C.S. Lewis's quote in the reflection uh, on the results of the loss of Charles's um, friendship, on, on the death of Charles's friend, he says something like this. This is beautiful. He's writing in his journal, he says, <clears throat> In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. 
I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald. That's what he called J.R.R. Tolkien. I shall never see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, <clears throat> now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. And this friendship exhibits a glorious Nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition by which um, by each of us has of, that each of us has of God for every soul seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says an old author is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy. Holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. Tim Keller sums that, that quote up by saying this. Lewis is saying that it took a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus Christ? You see, we need one another to draw out things that no one else can draw out of us. This is the way God has made us. The third person that we read about in this text is this man by the name of Epaphroditus. This is the only place in Scripture that speaks of him, and here's what we know about uh, what, the, what the passage says of him. He was actually part of this Philippian church. And, and what happened was the Philippian church said, hey, we, we need to minister to our brother Paul who's in prison. And he was elected by the church to, to make this 800-mile journey to Rome in order to take a monetary gift from the Philippian church to Paul during his incarceration. Paul says that the, that the church sent Epaphroditus to minister to him in his need. And so think about this. Paul, Paul's profession was tent-making, that's how he made a living. That's how he fed himself. He's in prison. And if he can't work, he doesn't have money to eat. Now, the Romans don't feed you if you're in jail. So this was a very dire need. Every day that Paul was behind bars, it's safe to say that he probably was not eating if he didn't have money there. I love the, that Paul shows us that he is a real person and he has real feelings. You see, part of... Being a good friend is actually being able to show up emotionally with that friend. And Paul's able to say to the Philippians in these passages that he, if Epaphroditus got sick on his journey, and he's able to say, um, in, in, in Epaphroditus getting deathly ill, he's able to say that, that I loved Epaphroditus and how he ministered me. It was, it was so profound that if he was able to die, uh, or that he died on top of all the sorrow that I'm feeling in this jail, I would have had sorrow on top of sorrow. All, in all this, what he's saying, that Epaphroditus is there, he's well now, and he says, I'm sending him back to you why? For your own benefit, so that you can rejoice that he has accomplished what you sent him to do. But until you see him, Paul says, it's going to, I mean, he shows up, he says, until you see him, it's going to make me a little anxious. Love that. He's concerned with his well-being. 
Paul is being human family, and we cannot be good friends unless we're willing to be human with one another. Being human means that we're willing to bring our entire selves to the relationship, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the relational. What if Paul, Paul the apostle, spiritual juggernaut, spiritual father for the Philippian church, would have just, in this letter, just compiled a theological position paper giving them a bunch of stuff about what they should believe. Well, I think it's a safe bet that if they ever found themselves in the, in, in the same situation or a similar hard situation, maybe like Paul was in, it would be really difficult to navigate their feeling of sadness or sorrow or pain uh, during that suffering. What if Paul would have just talked about just how anxious he was or how hard his suffering was, and that was all he talked about in the letter? Well, that wouldn't bring good news to bear in this admittedly difficult physical and emotional and spiritually trying time. What if he denied the physical need and he rejected the offerings? He would have starved to death. We do this all the time. Somebody offers us something that we need physically. And, and because out of this sense of like, I don't want to take what you got. Because I think in our minds we say the expectation would be, I've got to probably give that back to you if I take this. Right? Most of us think that way. If he would have rejected that, he would have starved to death in prison. I love the fact that he's able to be honest and say, I love that whole passage, how this, how this ends when he says, that, 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 he, that Epaphroditus made up for um, what was lacking in the Philippians' ministry. And I just asked myself, what was lacking in the Philippians' ministry to him? Their physical presence. And when he showed up, it's almost as if the entire, show, the entire Philippian church showed up in Epaphroditus to meet him in his physical need. What was lacking was this presence of this entire faith community in Philippi. And Paul feels this. He also encourages them that sending Epaphroditus with him uh, to him was a picture of Jesus. And both of these don't miss this. If you go back and read the first part of, of uh, Philippians chapter 2, you see what Paul says about Jesus is that um, he was not one who, who worked out of self-interest. Notice what he says about Timothy. Everybody else acts out of self-interest, not Timothy. He's saying Timothy looked like Jesus to him. Here he's saying um, that, that Epaphroditus risked, um, risked his life for the sake of Christ. What Paul is saying, he came near to death for the sake of Christ. He's saying Epaphroditus looked a lot like Jesus in order to come and visit him to lay his life down. The point of, it, the point of all this is this. Paul packs it all into this letter, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. And it's a fantastic picture of what gospel friendships and gospel partnerships look like. Look like. It's a commitment to be, it's a commitment to one another to give and to receive this God-given gift of being human. Now what, but here's the thing, now why in the world do the Cigna and the Barna statistics show us a disconnect between friendships and relationships? And you may be asking yourself, why in the world is this so hard? Especially with people who are closest to us, like our families, but especially, and especially with people who are not like us. 
Why in an evangelical church that seeks to embody the life and teachings of Jesus is this so still so difficult? And the answer to that is this. It's because of our own idolatry and our own functional misunderstanding of the gospel. You see, we wrongly want people just to believe the right things. And believing the right things are good things. We wrongly want people just to believe the right things before they're given an opportunity to be a part of the community. This assumes that, that, that we ourselves believe all the right things. You see, implicitly or explicitly, we draw boxes with our doctrinal statements. Just so you know, I'm a huge fan of doctrinal statements, but we would do well, uh, we would do, do well to understand that doctrinal statements as biblical fo- are, are, are simply bi- biblical foundations and the lens in which we teach from, rather than the things that we 100% believe all the time. Because here's the thing, if we 100% believed our doctrinal statements all the time, we wouldn't need Jesus and we wouldn't need this sermon this morning. We desperately just want people to believe the right things. In order to belong here, you've got to believe this. We want people to, we also want people just to behave the right way before they're given an opportunity to be part of the community. This assumes that we always behave the right way all the time. This constructs this pharisaical, get-like-me mentality that's based solely upon how I live my life. You see, if I'm propping up my own good works as the end-all, be-all, then what I'm showing is that I don't need Jesus' perfect work on my behalf. It's really easy for me to write you off. This week, as I thought of this idea of friendship and partnership, the show that came to mind was this HBO, many of you have seen it, this HBO series entitled Band of Brothers. If you watch the show, you know, you're going to know what I'm talking about. You take all these guys from all these different backgrounds here in World War II, and you, um, and you put them together in this same place, in this same platoon, and they're given this common mission. And man, when you, and you, you hear the, the guys, the old guys after the fact, like talking and giving a narration about what was going on and setting that stuff up, uh, and, and you, you listen to how they talk about one another, it, it, this, this diverse group of people that have, I mean, they have all sorts of differences. They have all sorts of fights about things among them. They have all sorts of things that they encountered. But this diverse group of people, when you hear them talk about each other, Um, what you know is that they are men who have a common mission, and because they have a common mission and they're clinging to that, they are men who care deeply for one another and who have one another's backs. It is a masterful picture of friendship. So what if, what if, we're going to come back to this question, imagine what it would be like if we were able to be for one another and the people around us, a safe place to belong and to become and to believe the gospel. As we are being human and being restored in our humanity by Jesus, we invite others to step in and see what God has done. The, The picture of friendship, partnership, membership that Paul is painting for us in, in this chapter is one that is clearly visible 
in the life of Jesus. What is it that we see in Jesus? Well, we see in him, as Paul has already stated in the beginning of chapter 2, we see this man, Jesus, in coming in his incarnation, empty himself. Not empty himself of his divinity, but empty, empty himself of, of holding on to the fact that he's the king of the world and coming and lowering himself and adding to his divinity humanity. And not being born a human in a palace, but being born a human in a stable and, and, and walking around and giving himself not to princes and kings, but giving himself to what people believed the dregs of society. To give himself in order to bring redemption to his people who he, in John, John 15, as we said this morning in the liturgy, as we sang, John 15, Jesus calls um, his disciples his friends. In fact, the paradigm that Jesus gives us in John 15 is the par same, very same paradigm that Paul is giving us here. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And we could preach an entire, we could preach months on how the Father loved Jesus so well. But, and then Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, that's how I love you. And he tells his disciples, remain in my love. How do we do that? In John 15, Jesus says the reason that he's telling his disciples these things is because he wants them to have, um, have, have the joy that he has. He says a complete joy. Again, I think it's important to draw parallels between what Jesus is saying in the upper room and what Paul is saying in the prison cell to the Philippians. Jesus shows us this peculiar joy on the way to Golgotha, the cross. Paul shows us a peculiar joy in the dank, dark cell of a Roman prison. We show the world a peculiar joy in and through our suffering and even in this time of self-isolation and quarantine and relational disconnectedness. John 15, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Now this is profound, family. This doesn't mean that, we don't, that we're not servants anymore. Now, if you have a good friend, you know that part of being a good friend. Like, you don't have to be told to serve that person. You just do because you love them. Friends serve one another. But what Jesus means here is that he is the model of the truest friend that we will ever know because Jesus has not left anything on the table. He's revealed everything to his disciples that they need to know in order to find true life. Life on the way to life. True shalom in him. He is the very embodiment of good news. Jesus calls us, if we are in him, his friends. And so, we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to be a friend of Jesus? Three things. Jesus said them. Remain in his love. Bear fruit. Love one another. Why does Jesus begin with remain or abide in me? Because he knows something about us that, family, we need to know about ourselves. Now, I'm going to say this twice because it is so, the implications of this are life-changing. Here's what Jesus knows about us that we need to recognize and know about ourselves. As we are with Jesus, so we will be with one another. I'm say that again. As we are with Jesus, so we will be with one another. When we allow ourselves to be humans 
who are being deeply changed by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we will freely offer this same grace to others. You know why? Because we didn't do anything to gain it. We didn't do anything to merit it, and it was all of free grace that God lavished it on us in his son, not just sprinkled it on top of us, but he poured the cosmic dump truck load of grace on us in the life and death and resurrection of his son. As we see that our common mission together is the mission that God has created us um, to carry out in his power, so we become the true and better band of brothers and sisters. It needs to be said here, it needs to be said here that not a single one of us, myself included, um, have figured out how to love one another perfectly. Full disclosure, I haven't figured out how to love any, everyone in my household perfectly, but I can safely say this. Through lots of glorious ups and lots of sorrowful lows, Resonate Church, we are community learning to practice gospel friendship through commitment to Jesus and commitment to one another. We are growing and need to grow more in this. But y'all, the stories, the stories in this church, they are there. The evidence of there is there of God's grace in our lives. And I would invite you, if you are already part of this church family and you've not done so, commit yourself to these brothers and sisters formally through covenant membership. You see, this talk of gospel friendship from me totally reframes the, reframes the idea of what church membership is. It's not a people that are just doing these things. It's saying, look, we recognize that apart from, from the Scripture, apart from the Spirit of God, that we cannot be friends with one another because we're natural enemies. We talked about that last week. And what we need from God is some practices that we can hold one another accountable to that looks like loving and serving one another as a family of missionary servants. When we, when we commit ourselves to that, that means that we are looking out for the love and the care and the well-being. And that has not always been communicated that way. And for that, I want to say I am deeply sorry for that. We need that type of commitment in a commitment-adverse culture. If you're part of our church family, like that's what that means, church membership. If you're not part of this church family, I'd simply, like, here, here's the invitation. I would simply invite you to come and see and examine for your, yourself what God is doing among us here. And, and full disclosure, it's not perfect, nor will it be, until Jesus comes back. But I'm going to tell you, what we have is pretty special. And for that, we give all glory to God. I want to say again that every single earthly friendship this side of heaven will absolutely fail you in some way. I don't say that as a cop-out or an excuse to be a crappy friend. I say that because it's just true. You see, the picture of true friendship, the picture of true partnership, the picture of true community is to point one another to the one friendship that can never fail us. That's Jesus. 
Why Jesus? Because in him we find redemption through his blood. And redemption means that there is a way for every man, every woman, and every child to be joined back to the God who created us. The God who created us to be in right relationship with him and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to be partners with him and to be partners with one another in the work of new creation. This morning I want to close just by asking some questions. As you hear about gospel friendships, partnerships, or memberships, what do you sense Jesus saying to you? If you're not yet a believer, you're not connected to a community, and you're and 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 this morning, like, what does that look like for you? I would just invite you, as I just did, to to come and to be part and to test this. Because Jesus says the way that you're going to know that we're his is by our love for one another. And if that's not there, then you get every right to say, nope, that's not God's people. If you're a covenant member, what does it look like to reframe the idea of covenant membership around gospel friendship? As you hear about gospel friendship, partnership, or membership, what do you sense Jesus saying to you? Maybe you desire it right now. Would you let someone know that? What would it look like for Resonate to more fully embrace friendship with Jesus? In your mind, what would it look like for Resonate to more fully embrace friendship with Jesus? What do you imagine there is happening? What do you imagine it would look like for Madison or Nashville to embrace this idea of friendship with Jesus, friendship with one another? What would it look like for Madison and Nashville to embrace this idea of friendship with Jesus and one another? And then when you think about people who need a friend, how does the gospel prompt you right now? What are some ways in which you can reach out to them and be a good friend? Think about people who need a friend. How does the gospel prompt you to reach out to them? How can you tell a story about someone who's been a good friend to you like Paul's doing here? How can you tell a story about someone who's been a good friend? And then when you think about that person who needs a friend, how will you plan to be that, per- that friend for them this week. Ask the Lord for his help there. How will you plan to be a friend of that person this week? I'm going to pray for us and then we'll take communion together. Looks like the video feed went out. So sorry about that. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for making your truth real to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, the word of life, so that we would embody the glorious good news here in our community. We ask that what we do, how we live, and the way we love may increasingly become a worthy gospel response. We pray these things in your name. Amen.